Hi, and thank you for joining me for another episode of Beyond the Pink Cloud. This is your host, Dr. Alice Kirby, and today I'm excited to have with me Kimberly Johnson from MAGA Mamas, and she is a practitioner with a wide variety of expertise and experience, so I will go ahead and introduce her and let her tell you a little bit more about herself. Hi, Kimberly. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Alice. Thanks for having me. So I know you best from your MAGA Mamas um, website, and I know you're author and author of several books. So would you be able just to tell us a little bit about how MAGA Mamas came to be and a little bit about the work that you do in the world? Sure. Yeah. Well, so far I've written one book, but I'm in the process of writing another one right now. So I was a longtime yoga teacher and body worker. I'm a rolfer. And then I had a baby and my whole life changed and I had a physical injury as a result of the birth that I'd never dealt with before. And so I started to talk to more women about their experiences, about everything related really to childbirth, to pregnancy. And then that just kind of trickled out into everything having to do with gynecological and pelvic health and sexual health. And so I started to do internal pelvic floor work because I realized that that was a kind of untouched zone for so many of the women that I was talking to. And I was really getting amazing results doing the internal work. Then a lot of trauma started coming up through that process. And I realized I needed some more tools than what I had. So I went to the somatic experiencing training. And I also went to a sexological bodywork training so that I got even more of a full picture of sexuality and consent and all of the ways that that played out through relationship, really. So those are my main pieces of my background. So with the being a, sexolo- a sexological body worker, um, mm-hmm. is what you do familiar, because I know I've got quite a few colleagues who are um, pelvic floor physical therapists who will go in and do internal work and work with the musculature of the, the pelvic floor and the pelvic hammock. Is that part of the work that you do? It can be. Uh, I'd say that it's in general, physical therapy works with biomechanics, mm-hmm. so it really works with muscle and structure and isolating muscle function just because that's how our picture of anatomy got put forth and I deal with yes biomechanics and it happens to be kind of a specialty since I was the yoga teacher and a rolfer but I also deal with the biochemical components which could look like vaginal steaming or nutritional stuff that's impacting UTIs or impacting chronic infection or scar tissue remediation And then I also work with the trauma element. So what I realized was happening is if women were getting PT referrals, which isn't a given, it's it's starting to get more normal and there's starting to be more practitioners and more demand for the practitioners. But a lot of PTs really feel like emotion is out of their scope of practice and they they really even shouldn't be dealing with it. And of course, for most women, having their vagina and vulva touched, whether it's by a doctor or a PT or a lover or you know, it's it's charged and there's a lot there to work with, which is kind of good news because it's really effective when you have those trauma tracking skills to do the contact work together with it. There's a lot of possibility for repair pretty quickly. So I work in the same territory, but I have a sort of wider vision and lens of how I'm doing the work. 
I'm sure that's so beneficial for so many women because I don't think we're ever like really even taught about how to address our pelvic floor and that it's that it can even be an issue. I know after birth, a lot of times, and I don't have children myself, but just being a physical therapist in the field and then having, you know, friends, family members, loved ones who've, you know, had these kind of traumatic birth processes. And then there really hasn't been any attention addressed to what comes after. It's just kind of like, well, you have a baby and you'll heal and you'll move on and, um, you know, get back to your lifestyle at some point. And there's never really that pause to address, you know, what has actually gone on with the pelvic floor. Right. The pelvic floor and the emotional body and all of the imprints that happen as a result of an experience as powerful as birth, which is going to wake up and shake loose whatever else has happened in that territory. You know, you work a lot with sobriety. A lot of women haven't had sober sex or a lot of it. And then they stop drinking when they're pregnant usually. So that's like a double whammy of like, wake up, wake up to this whole other level of experience. And so I work with a lot of women that uh, are just, they feel like they are starting over in terms of sexuality and who they really are because they've relied on whether it's alcohol or weed to release just their inhibitions. And now they have to like confront intimacy and like how tender we can be in meeting different people and, and sort of putting together a new framework of what our standards are and how we want sex to be an integrated part of our life. So there's, there's the physical aspect of it for sure, which is highly neglected and, And I believe that if we stopped talking about women's mental health and we started talking about uh, postpartum recovery and everything that really goes into it, we wouldn't really have to talk about mental health because we would be providing women the adequate support that they need, including pelvic floor work, so that they didn't feel like their organs were falling out or they might pee or poop at any minute or they're afraid to sneeze or afraid to jump on the trampoline or really subconsciously avoiding sex because that area just feels so out of control or it was so painful before that registry of pain is still there. So there's so many things that can be repaired when we go back really slowly to that area and we listen and we go without agenda and people can do this on their own. They can do it with vaginal steaming, which feels really good and smells good and is a chance to kind of get back in contact with the area. It also pulls all of the unprocessed material out of the literally um, a lot of women have painful periods after childbirth and it's because their uterus never got a full cleanse Hmm. and it's really effective with prolapse and with stitches we just did a one of my colleagues kelly garza who's known as the steamy chick we did a study called the fourth trimester vaginal steam study and every it was a very small study it's called a preliminary study but the six people who had stitches and steamed, their pain went away at eight days. So they steamed from day four to day eight, and it went away at eight days, and it never came back at the six-week mark because we measured at the eight-week and six, eight-day and six-week mark. But the control group that didn't steam had just as much pain on the eighth day as they did, and it continued on to the six-week mark. So they got no relief from the pain and the pulling of the stitches, uh, which is significant because it's really rare to see intact perineums these days almost everyone has stitches after they have a baby so it's really important because then you know years go by and we're all 
if you have a child, you're subsumed with taking care of them. And a lot of women are back to work and, you know, being all of the roles that we are daughters and whatever wives. And then years go by and we haven't really come back to ourselves and we haven't really tended. And then our relationship is in a situation that feels perhaps irreparable or, but it really started back in the early days of not getting the care that was really important. Yeah. I don't think we're taught that really at all ever, you know, as young women, you know, through puberty, becoming sexually active. I don't think there's ever a time when it's, you know, like here's what's going on with your vagina and here's how we can emotionally address it. So I think that's really wonderful work. And it sounds like your own, your daughter's 10 or 11, is that right? She's 11. She's about to be 12. She's yeah, 11. She's, as you were saying that, I was like, well, my daughter's learning those things and mm-hmm. she's telling her friends about it. You might have listened. She was on my podcast uh, as a guest because she had a sex ed class and she's been wanting, she's a Leo. She was like really wanting to be a guest anyways. And she's like, this is really about partially about me, you know? And I'm like, Oh yeah, totally. <laughs> this, you know, you wouldn't have written that book if you didn't have me. I'm like, you're right. So she really had a lot to say just about, you know, being in sixth grade and having their two hour sex ed class that was being shown a film from 1980. Yeah. And one of the teachers that was teaching it was the student. So there was like a 65-year-old teacher and then a 30-year-old teacher. And the 30-year-old had been the 65-year-old student in the 80s and had watched the same video as her sex ed. And Cece had all kinds, my daughter had all kinds of corrections because she's like, they weren't even giving good information. And I was thinking about it too, because my daughter, she knows all about period underwear. And I was telling her that like what period underwear meant to me until maybe two years ago was underwear that was stained that you keep in a you shove to the side of the drawer knowing that those ones are good if you have your period. But she's about, she hasn't started her cycle yet, but she's about to. And, and she's like, well, I'm not sure if I want to use the Diva Cup or if I want to use Luna Pads or if I want to do this. And she's really aware of all these options that have just really, I mean, cloth pads have been around for a while, but I didn't know, I didn't really know about them. And maybe until I lived in Brazil, like, you know, five years ago or something. So, it's cool. There's a lot more out there right now. Definitely. And it's great that your daughter's so informed. I haven't listened to that episode with her, but I will. <laughs> How do you, I mean, this is a really broad question. I'm curious, just since you've been doing this, this work, like how you have noticed changes within your own sex life, and like how hmm. you approach intimacy with yourself or with partner. <clears throat> yeah. What changes you've noticed or what's shifted for you, or maybe you've just been like really highly evolved from from day one? I don't know. Well, I feel like we're always evolving sexually. I feel like that's one thing that we're, that also doesn't seem normal to people so that mm-hmm. if they have one type of sexual identity and then it changes. It feels like a huge loss or it feels like there's something wrong when really it's just, we're evolving all the time in our sexuality. And that doesn't even mean like sometimes you have a high drive and sometimes you have a low drive. It's really more about what you're expressing, what aspects of yourself you're exploring. I've been doing this work for my daughter's almost 12 since she was about two is like when I, when she was one, I did my first doula training and my entry into my own sexuality was, I was sexually assaulted in college in my first year. And I, 
was that was kind of the first experience in my life that just sort of turned my world upside down where nothing seemed to make sense anymore. And I thought, I thought if I was a good person, like the right thing would happen to me. And I had, I just had to figure a lot out. And actually that's when I started yoga. So that's what brought me to yoga. And I think I always, after that, you know, it took a long time. I have this, I have really strong attachment needs. So for me, um, it requires at that time, at least it felt like it required a lot of trust, but not really just trust. It was like, I was still operating in a mentality of like every person I met, I was hoping was going to be my husband and I was hoping was going to be the one that I was going to have a family with. So there was so much pressure on every relationship because I really wanted a baby. Even when I was like 22, I already wanted a baby. So there's a lot of unconscious drives that were sort of getting pasted on relationship. And I didn't have a way. It was complicated for me to decide who I wanted to trust in terms of relationship and how that would be. Then when I had a baby and I realized I wasn't going to be with my daughter's father anymore. And with him, I had a really satisfying, at that time, looking back, I kind of wonder about it. But at that time, I felt really satisfied. I felt like I had finally met someone who met my level of drive, who basically was like a yes all the time. And I was pretty much a yes all the time. So that it felt really satisfying in that way. And then once I realized I wasn't going to be with him anymore, I was kind of like, okay, this now we've got to figure something out because I, I was full-time parenting and full-time breadwinning. I didn't, my daughter was in at that point at like two years old, she was going to like a little preschool from nine to five right next door to my building. I was working during that time. And then when I, when I wasn't doing that, I wanted to be with her. So I didn't want to like pick her up at daycare and then give her to a babysitter and then go out. And plus I didn't have money for that anyway. So I was like, all right, I, am I going to be one of those people that just says, oh, I'll get back to this when my daughter's finished with high school? Or am I going to figure out how to have an erotic life in this situation? And my sexuality has always been important to me. It's always been a way that I access a playful side of myself and some unconscious material that I can't get to a lot of other ways. So that's when I started really experimenting with trying to, you know, I, I consider sex to sort of be like a tangled ball of yarn and we say sex, but we mean a whole bunch of things. And so I started to untangle those threads and what was pleasure separate from attachment and what was companionship separate from attachment or separate from pleasure and what's masculine energy and what was just my need to be close to masculine energy. And what about the feminine energy that I feel ignited in me and there and, and where else can that happen. And so I learned about orgasmic meditation and I tried to teach a couple of people how to, do you know about that practice? I don't. Okay. Um, it's a practice that uh, it's really simple. It's usually done with a man and a woman and the man is the stroker and the woman is the strokey and the man strokes the upper left corner of the clitoris for 12 minutes. And it's, there's no goal of orgasm. It's really about separating out climax and orgasm mm. and getting really attuned with a very, it's like a meditation on a fine point that happens to be the clitoris. So it's putting female pleasure at the center. It's taking penetration out of the equation. It's very boundaried. So you know what's going to happen. There's no surprises. This is the practice. There's, um, there's a 
code to it, really. You set up a special space for the practice. There's a way that you sit. There's an exchange that you have. And so it's really about claiming pleasure and being able to expand your capacity and range for experience. And for a lot of people, of course, uh, emotions come up and all kinds of things, but it's about developing a sensation language as well, doing it, establishing the polarity of men being the givers and women being the receivers, because that's getting so also tangled up these days. And so many women want to be in the receiving position, but we don't know how to be anymore because we've been in that like driving, achieving, I can do everything. I can do it all. I can do it better. I can do everything a man can do and I can do it better. And in our, in the sexual arena, that doesn't seem to be as fruitful as it could be. I feel like it can almost take the turn into like a dominant and submissive thing, which, you know, of course that's fine, whatever people want to do. But I feel like sometimes instead of trying to go in and actually untangle and work with the threads, that was a really beautiful way that you, um, that you talked about that. But I think then it just becomes this flip of like, okay, well, because I'm doing so much of my day-to-day life, like in the bedroom, I just want to be completely submissive instead of maybe just taking some of the parts of that, which I think could potentially be, you know, more healthy or more integrated, I think, mm-hmm. for women. I think both can happen. Yeah. To me, it's about developing the range in your nervous system and the possibility for a choice. So if it's just your default that you're going into collapse, basically, and you're just Mm -hmm. like, okay, now I'm just going to lay here and I want to be done. And and that's all you want. But even that, I mean, Nicole Daydone said, you know, she did like, she's the woman who wrote Slow Sex and who kind of put forward orgasmic meditation. She said she was, she herself was stroked for like, I don't know, 2,000, 3,000, 5,000, 10,000 hours. And there got to be a point where she realized that she would never be able to pay it back. Hmm. And finally, it shook her out of this transactional thing that we get in where it's like, oh, they, I, someone did something for me, then I have to do it back. And to just be receiving and receiving and receiving and actually having people want to give because a lot of men love the practice and actually want to do it. And they're not, there is, there is a reciprocal practice, but it's not even a part of the book or a part of like, it's considered way advanced. It's, yeah, I think it's just... But some people's sexual makeup is, I don't know, it's, it's, I see a lot of value in BDSM and, and a lot of the, all the kinds of, I don't know if you call it progressive or what, for sure what's seen within SE or within the psychological community as like deviant behavior or like an attempt at trauma repair. But the fact of the matter is, is that we're always trying to attempt to repair trauma all the time. Like that's, that's basically like, our system level high functioning is let me offer situations where we can repair. And Mm -hmm. I don't think that there's, I think that some people are definitely wired into a level of intensity that perhaps in the rest of their life isn't as functional, but uh, overall, you know, I'm sure, you know, like BDSM is really pretty sober community. So people are making the agreement sober and uh, there's a, it's, it's fairly, I don't know if regimented is the right word, but it's highly ritualized. Let's say that. So everyone knows what to expect. And I mean, I hear what you're saying about wanting to be submissive in the bedroom, but I also work with so many women who would love to be submissive, but they can't, they -hmm. can't let go of control. They can't let go of, of, they can only have an orgasm in one certain position and they panic if they forget their rabbit vibrator when they're going to another country and it's like it's the the world of sex and the range of experience of what 
an orgasm or a climax is, is so narrow. So really what I'm interested in is just helping people kind of move from black and white into color and see the full range of experience that does all interconnect when it comes to relationships and sexuality. That's certainly a, a really nice ideal. And that's wonderful that you're, you know, you're taking that out of the realm of ideal and actually working with people to, you know, to help them achieve this sort of nervous system type regulation. And I don't know if that's how you would describe it. It's a part of it. Yeah. Okay. And it's like what, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you too, and was when you work with women to create more of like a nervous system regulation and I'm, maybe that is just a part of it, but to create more of an awareness of their own system and to continue to expand the system um, towards pleasure, Mm -hmm. towards being able to orient towards pleasure. Like what have, like, I guess, where's the line with finding sort of that gentleness with our own system and then still being able to be um, maybe not a high achiever, but kind of like to go, I mean, you're certainly a successful businesswoman and a successful author so I find this in my own life sometimes of really trying to self-regulate and make sure I'm, you know, caring for my own system. I tend to have sort of a slower system in general. So I know like sometimes the things I need to do for myself is to, you know, to go take a couple of days in nature and to really slow down and to let my system regulate. That's very re- like regulating for me uh, or regulatory. But then also there's this other aspect of, okay, well, I want to keep creating what I'm creating and, you know, working on business, life, family, whatever it is, like that sort of general drive and busyness. I guess what I'm asking are what are some tools or what lines have you found in yourself in in working with women to sort of balance those things or to be able to continue to do that self-care, nervous system regulation and maintain in um, a place where you can continuously expand capacity, but also continue to, I guess, achieve what you're trying to achieve. Does that make sense? Yeah, there's a lot of pieces to it. Yes. So I feel like in some ways, maybe when I hear your question, I think that there's like a conflation of capacity and productivity. Like how you're saying, like, how do you expand your capacity and, you know, keep achieving, keep doing these things. And I think that we, the expanding the capacity is actually it doesn't work if it's in service of trying to do more Mm. because resting also expands our capacity. In fact, a lot of times resting expands it more. It's so complex because it really is so individual and there's so many layers of how, how it works, you know, like connective tissue, density, nutrition, what we do for movement. I can't really say, I mean, I'm a single parent and my daughter's now almost 12, but for the, from the years when she was six until 10, when she was 10, I got an au pair and we have another person, another adult that lives in our house. But before that I lived alone with her. And that means that anytime she was home, then I also had to be home. So even if she fell asleep at eight o'clock at night, I can't go anywhere, including the grocery store. If I forgot butter or including a date or whatever, like I have to be here unless I pay someone else to be here, which at the time wasn't, wasn't an option. And so, and I was in SE training at the time. And then I went to sexological bodywork training and I had a 30 day masturbation practice that was of homework for sexological bodywork. At that point I was living in my parents' house. 
So I had to figure out how to do a masturbation practice living with my parents with like my ancestor pictures on the wall and sharing a bedroom with my daughter. And at that time, people would say like, you're overworking. And I was seeing, you know, 15 clients a week and I was writing a book and I was, you know, caring full-time breadwinning. And I felt resentful of those suggestions because it was like, if I'm going to create what I need to create for us to have a different kind of life and more, uh, more of a foundation, this is how I have to do it right now. So there's times in our lives, like I see this happening with the motherhood conversation where everyone is like, well, you know, new moms, they just don't even get close to the amount of sleep they need. Well, yeah, duh. (laughs) I mean, you have a new baby. Of course, you're not getting the like regular, whatever the whomever decides how much sleep we're supposed to get every night. Of course, new moms aren't going to get that sleep, but that shouldn't be an excuse uh, or like, do we all need sleep? Yeah, of course we all need sleep, but we are designed as resilient beings to be able, I mean, what it would, that would be a very faulty design of the procreation of the species somehow depended on us having to do something that was unviable. We can survive on the levels of sleep, whatever they are, when we're new moms. And that probably means we need to shift. That's what people don't want to really look at is they want the regulation within the life that they've already established without actually deciding to change something that might provide you the ability Mm. to have a regulatory, like classic thing. Someone's in my class, I teach a class called activate your inner Jaguar. It's exactly about this step-by-step orientation, how to take in inside and outside material through the channels. It's basically like the basic SE, but related to birth and sex. And I always forget when I'm teaching the class that some people are really looking to expand their capacity or whatever, develop more resilience to be in shitty situations. Hmm. It's like if you're in an abusive relationship, you can, there's only so far your capacity can expand. You need to fucking get out of the relationship. Yeah, that's a great point. It's not about developing. Same thing. People want to be like, oh, I don't, you know, I'm going to develop so much resilience that I don't have these emotions. No, you're going to develop resilience so that you have a platform of okayness so that when the big waves come, you have a foundational deep sense that you're going to be okay. You're not, you're not thrown deeper into crisis, but you're like, all right, these are some big waves, but I'm doing it. I'm doing it and I can do it. Right. And as we develop more resilience, that's what usually happens because as we know, capacity happens in both directions. So you know, uh, it's as jarring to my system when I get a six-figure big book deal as it is a relationship breakup. And I have to deal with, okay, so everything that's quote-unquote quote good, right, like it's good that I get a big book deal, has another side where it's like, shit, I got to, like, now, for instance, when I go to a party, a lot of people want to talk to me about my work. And I notice that sometimes I'm kind of rude and then I have to face my self-image because I'm like, wait, why am I doing that? And then it's like, oh, well, because I don't want to talk about my Instagram account in every social gathering that I'm at. Oh, okay. So this is a new challenge that I'm going to have because people are starting to recognize me like when I walk down the street or I go in the subway or whatever, and I'm going to have to figure out some ways that I can be gracious and maintain my own energy because I have a really kind of just diffuse energy field and it takes a lot for me to shore it up sometimes. So we confuse 
how to develop capacity, like, oh, well, I want to be able to do more things. But really, it's like, I want to be able to be present for the things that I am doing. And that the thrust of life is pushing me forward rather than my mental agenda. Yes. I think trying to be in that place where the thrust of life is pushing you forward versus create, trying to create and create and create something that maybe just isn't, isn't happening or feels like it's a constant force, but then trying to create more capacity like for that force doesn't necessarily work. So I think that's a good point to, um, that you made in thinking about like people want to create resiliency for shitty situations, but just sometimes you really have to change the situation. And that takes a lot of discernment and it takes courage and all those things, but that's what an awake life is, right? And so if we're listening, if we're really listening, our body is giving us, it's talking to us all the time. It's just that we have to learn to be accurate translators. And that takes, I think, time and practice and, yeah, you know, constantly. And that's one of the the things, you, I don't know if you hear this a lot, but I was drawn to you because you seem like you are internally very well regulated. Like you seem like you have a very good awareness of your own system. Mm. So I'm sure that's through all the work you've done. Um, or I don't, I, I was in a meeting last night and someone was talking about how I want to do, like I'm looking for where I need to do more work on myself. Oh, wow. I know. And just the, like the vernacular of it to me, I was like, ah, oh, that's not, I don't know. I, I'm really taken with um, with the organic intelligence model, and I listened to your interview with Steve. Yeah, yeah. and he was actually the um, the person who trained my therapist, who introduced me to SE, and she's gone through the OI training and helped assist with some of it. So, sort of the SE work that I was introduced to and continue to practice with her before I even entered into the training was very much around like orienting to pleasure. Yeah. And so that's kind of what I tend to do with the women that I work with and, uh, and in my own life is like, instead of where do I need to go and do the work? Like, where can I, where am I already feeling good or what's already working? Um, and just tapping into those moments of where things are pleasurable. It's so important. It's, it's, you know, there's whole bodies of work now, like pleasure activism, such a beautiful book specifically about this, that, you know, we live in a culture that is just so based on this puritanical work ethic and mm-hmm. kind of stoicism. And, and then it's coalesced with the, I don't even know, what do you want to call it? Like the self-help growth thing with, you know, Tony Robbins and Landmark Forum and, uh, you know, and, and all of it is about push your edges and go to the places and do the shadow work. And, there's a place for that. And I know that people get a lot out of that work, but it is addictive. And I'm sure of that because I watch people just cycle through that program and then another program and then another program. And it's all about, you know, stretching your days super long and depriving yourself of certain things and then doing the hard thing. And it's just all amping up the intensity level all the time. And I mean, I couldn't be more bored of a conversation than this kind of thing about finding your next level of growth. It's like, who cares? Like, what is, what's your work to do? Like, who are you in this world? And what's true to your heart? What's true to your soul? And it's not like scouring around in the dark recesses and then just picking at it is, is what people have been doing for ages in talk therapy. And it's why so many people are, are now 
you know, it's, it's astonishing that somatic experiencing has basically been taken out of the realm of something that's alternative and body focused. And it's been centered in a dialogue where now most of the practitioners have PhDs and are doctors or psychologists or um, licensed clinical social workers, which that has, it's, that's a whole other conversation, but we're realizing that the body as, is, uh, you know, Bessel van der Kolk famously said that the body is keeping the score. And, and if we really believe that, because it's so funny, I was having a conversation with a friend the other day and her body just totally like a week before her body completely shut down. She went to visit her family out of the country, really stressful situation. She got there. She started to have a stomach ache. She went to the hospital. They thought, you know, she thought it was maybe this and maybe that. And then when she came home to tell the story, I was like, oh, you're better. Like you, you, you and, she, and she goes, yeah, you know, it's almost like that my body recognizes something that I'm not willing to recognize. And me and my other friend were listening. We both burst out laughing. It's not almost like it. It is like it. That's what just like my subconscious talks to me through my, yeah, yeah. You are in a super uncomfortable situation and your body was there to tell you that it was too much. So, but what we want to do then is solve the problem of the body. Like, oh, well then I need to go on a special diet and I need to do this and da 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 rather than hold on. Like what is, what about that situation? It's not like we have the power to change every situation that we have to be in. Like I said, like I was a single mom. I had that situation. I didn't have other resources to change it for, for a period of time. You know, I think that's why I was, I'm writing the chapter in my book right now about the correlation between the nervous system responses under threat and the emotional correlates to them. Mm. And when I got to helplessness, I was like, which is a, which is the response when the parasympathetic nervous system is under threat. It's one of the escalated responses, a feeling of helplessness. And I thought, well, that's what so many women feel postpartum because they are, they're trapped. You don't have physical autonomy. You can't really leave where you are. And from a spiritual perspective, there's so much to offer in that. That's, you know, like the Pema Children's book, The Wisdom of No Escape. Like it's the real no escape. It's not your yoga mat or your cushion where you actually can fucking get up. Mm -hmm. It's like you got to go to the bathroom and you got a baby on your breast and you have to do that whole thing. But if you have earlier freeze experiences, it makes sense that that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I don't want to take up too much of your time, Kimberly, but I do want to offer you um, just a platform. If there's any work that you want to share, any projects that you have ongoing, um, anything that you'd like to just put out there for the community who's listening, please feel free. Well, I have like a few ongoing online courses and communities. As you mentioned, I'm on Instagram a lot with MAGA mamas and probably your listeners, it's good for them to know that MAGA does, is not related to our current political climate. It's related, it means sorceress in Portuguese. And I lived in Brazil for eight years and my daughter's Brazilian. And actually that's where I started my um, SE training, my somatic experiencing training. And so my, the people in my neighborhood called me the MAGA. So that's why, that's where that comes from. But yeah, so I lead women through this six, actually this time it's a seven-week um, class because I added a class on racialized trauma. 
these practices that really when I went to somatic experiencing school and Steve Hoskinson was my trainer when I was in the U.S., I just thought this is like a course in how to be a human being. Like this isn't really, I mean, yes, it's a skill to have to work with people, but it's really just about how to be, how to be with each other. And it explained so many things for me. It was like when I took Rolfing, that really put a lot into place for me about yoga. But then when I learned SE, it was like this huge sort of base thing that every other practice that I've ever learned fit into. So it was like the meta set for me. And then I felt like everybody needs to know this. And then the me too happened. And I made a video that was talking about the predator prey dynamic and how so many women were identified with the prey. And we need to start to identify with the predator because that will restore our nervous system capacity and this full spectrum to be within dominance and submission and not only be in one side or the other, which was very controversial because no one wants to be called a predator. And, you know, it's really hard for women to even imagine activating their sympathetic nervous system in certain ways. So I made that video, it went viral, and then people were like, okay, great. We love what you're saying. Some people said that. Some people said you're an enemy of women. And uh, how do we do this? And so I just really was like, all right, I'm going to try because I was scared to try to do something in a group and to try to do something outside of a Mm one-on-one setting. But I realized like this is this is still going to be elitist. If it's still one-on-one, no matter how much we offer free sessions and we do this, there's only so many people that it can reach. And people come reach out to me from all over the world and even states in the U.S. where there's no SE practitioners or it's very far from them. And I thought, okay, well, let me see if I can teach the basics. Plus, most of the SE teachers are men and all the big trauma books are pretty much written by men. And I was like, this needs a feminist perspective. Like the part on sexual trauma in the SE training was, in my opinion, totally pathetic. And I was like so nervous about that module. And then it came and it was like a half a day out of the four days of my Mm -hmm. training. And I'm thinking, okay, everyone wants to talk about complex PTSD. Well, sexual trauma for most women, especially most women that are in the SE trainings, that's going to be an underlying foundational trauma. And if, if it's given a half of a day, I, in my experience with working, you know, before, before I took the training, I was already doing the work. I'm like, this is, this is the nexus. This is the center of the whole thing that if you get to that center, everything else starts to fall into place. And that, that remains my viewpoint about it, that it's not like leave sexuality last to the thing that you get to because on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that's at the top that doesn't really matter because it's not totally related because it's pleasure-based. So if it's pleasure based, it must be extra because that doesn't, that's not real. That doesn't really matter. And we start to put that first. And I think when people hear the words, because there's so much shame and so much guilt and so much disorientation when it comes to sexuality, starting at our education from people who are also uninformed, you know, then there's, we're already in a space that we're not as empowered and So if we start with pleasure, and we know that pleasure doesn't just mean sexual pleasure. Pleasure means anything that feels good. And this it's a very hard practice for everyone. And then it's really hard for meditators and spiritual practitioners where we've developed all this equanimity about like, I'm neutral. I don't don't have a preference. I'm neutral. I mean, it took me a long time to get out of that because 
do you like it or not like it? I mean, the question kind of offended me because I'm like, why are you even asking me that? Like, I, I'm here with it. Isn't that enough? But it's not in this, in this case. So we have a big key actually to the puzzle. And so we go through that in my Jaguar course. I have another course called Forging a Feminine Path, an Embodied Conversation of Spirituality and Sexuality. And that's like a foundational course that goes through the sexual scripts that we have. Everyone's favorite class is one I do that's is specifically on the sexual anatomy because I think it's everyone's favorite, first of all, because they're just like, holy shit, I didn't know any of this. I didn't know where the erectile tissue was. I didn't really know what a G-spot was. I didn't know, you know, and then I'm putting that together with the other layers. So it's like an integrative class. And then I have a few other things, like I have a class called Mother Circle, where we go through like there's mother line, mother womb, mother birth, mother wound. Uh, There's eight classes and all of the classes are really somatically based. So there is a linear progression, but I really teach through modulating and regulating as I'm teaching. So that's the right thing for some people and it's not the right thing for other people who, but I figure there's plenty of books that you can read, but what I'm trying to offer goes beyond the books and into an experience of trans transmission as well as riding waves together and being able to feel that. And then I have a book coming out, another book coming out, but I don't, I can't even tell you when because books take forever. Once you finish them, it's due October 1st, but it could be January, 2021 before it comes out at the moment. It's called rewilding, activate your inner Jaguar for more power, pleasure, and purpose. Harper wave at Harper Collins is the publisher. Uh, my first book is with Shambhala, the fourth trimester. And then in November, I have a card deck that's coming out with the book. And then in some time in the future, again, when in publishing time, I'll have a journal that's coming out with the first book. That's great. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today, Kimberly. It's a real pleasure to speak with you. Thanks for having me. All right. Have a good day.